Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. My name is Ryan Moore, and uh, one of the pastors on staff here at Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. If you notice the cover of your bulletin, see the picture of an ocean scene with an anchor and the words, Hold Fast Your Hope. We are uh, in the beginnings of a new series on the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you were with us last week, we began that study uh, in chapter 1, which is where we'll also be this morning. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And we'll be reading and looking at verses 5 to 14. This will be the rest of chapter 1. And as we begin to, to read this, to hear this, let me just remind you that this is still the author or the pastor, as we've been calling him. This is his introduction to this book, okay? So with that, let us give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would do a miracle. And by miracle, we pray that you would soften hardened hearts to you. And we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. So that we may leave here, change people. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> On December 26, and 1919, what has been dubbed one of the worst trades in baseball history, the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $25,000. That might sound like a lot of money in 1919. Equivalents today would be about $350,000. So you can kind of see, was this a good deal? I don't know. I actually read about this, that the owner did this so that he could have the money to get a play going in New York or something or Boston. Anyways, uh, $25,000 for Babe Ruth for one of the players, if not the player who is considered the greatest baseball player in all of history. Broke numerous, numerous records, holds many today while bringing four World Series championships to the, the, to the Big Apple. Boston, what were you thinking? 
Now, many people are quick to say, hey, you know, Boston didn't really know that Ruth was going to pan out this well. He didn't really know that he was going to go on to bring, uh, you know, four World Series, shatter the home record. You know, he did have 19 home runs as a pitcher in that first year for the Boston Red Sox. But, you know, can you really blame Boston for trading someone, for letting go someone this great? And the answer, of course, is yes, you can. You you can absolutely blame Boston. When you have a Babe Ruth on your team, you never let him go. That is the moral of this story. As we continue along in the introduction of Hebrews, the author is making a similar point about Jesus and this great salvation that he has won for us. And the point is this to his audience, that when you have this great of a savior, that when you have this great of a mediator for you, you never let him go. Now, the only difference between the Boston Red Sox and us this morning is that unlike Boston, we actually have a record of the account of this great savior to look at. We actually have a record to see what it is that he has done, this Jesus. And in light of this knowledge, the question that the author is presenting to its audience and to us this morning is, in light of this, are you still going to drift away? Are you still going to let him go? This is the author or pastor's point in this introduction to persuade and to encourage the Christians to whom he is writing that they should not neglect Such a good salvation. And if it were you writing this letter, trying to persuade these individuals who are going through difficult times, how would you do it? How would you go about persuading them? What would you say? What would you do? Well, what we find in this introduction, as we just read in chapter one, is that the author chooses to be to begin his case looking at seven Old Testament texts. We will not have time to dive into all of them, but we will look at a few. But by doing this, by by beginning his argument this way, the author is entering into the Old Testament longing of the one day, someday, when the Messiah would come and make all things right. The one day, someday, when God's heir, when when, when, when the son of David would come and fix things. The one day, someday, when somebody would come along and fix the world. And the question that the, that the author of the Hebrews is, is trying to present to us is what if that someday has already come? What if that Savior has already been here and come along? If he had, would you ignore it? Would you just let him go? Three points to guide us this morning. I want us to see the temptation that we all face. I want us to see the credentials that we all need. And I want us to see, lastly, how we receive those credentials. So the temptation that we all face, the credentials that we all need, and how we receive those credentials. So let's look at that first one, the temptation that we all face. As we look at the entire introduction here in chapter 1, beginning last week in verses 1 to 4, we notice that the author chooses angels to compare Jesus to. Back in verse 4, he writes, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, perhaps maybe you found yourself asking, Why angels? 
Why is he choosing to show Jesus' superiority to angels? Why not kings and rulers? Right? Maybe that, maybe that crossed your mind. But to really understand the rest of this chapter and why the author chooses seven Old Testament texts, we have to learn a little bit about why or what his audience and the people that they thought about angels. Because when we do this, we find something very familiar, and that is the temptation we all face when presented with Christ, and that is to make him something that he is not. How so? The Christians this letter was written to found themselves fighting two different parties as they were striving to be faithful, as they were striving to live lives to follow this Messiah. On the one hand, you had the persecution of Nero, who any reading of history shows you that that voice was pretty loud. Right? Nero would take Christians and he would put them up on poles and set them on fire to light his gardens during his parties. Right? That's a pretty loud voice in your ear if you're trying to discern whether or not Jesus is God and whether or not you really want to say that he is the Christ. On the other hand, you had Jews who did not convert to Christianity. And, and in many ways, they were ostracizing Christians in the synagogue. And, and in some sense, instances, uh, especially with family members, causing them to, to have to be removed from the family themselves. One commentary says this, if they would simply agree, referring to people like the first audience that Hebrews was written to, the Christians of this day, if they would simply agree that Jesus was an angel, perhaps even the greatest of angels, but not God, they would be accepted into the synagogue and accept the, and escape, excuse me, the awful pressure. And this was attractive because it didn't require an outright denial of Christ but only a slight adjustment of his greatness and his glory. Sure, I believe in spiritual things and and Jesus was great and he was even better than the best angel. And I could say all that and never have to acknowledge that he was the son of God and avoid the two pressures on both sides. Where the temptation comes in then is what a confession like that brings us. It brings us a nice and easy Life, A nice and easy going life without any of the mess that comes with having to stand up in a crowd and point at a man and say, you are the Christ. And so the author sets out to show his readers that Jesus isn't a mere angel and even a higher angel at that. He is God himself. And the scripture has been talking about him forever But before we go and we look at that, I want us to look a little bit closely about how this temptation still plagues us today. The temptation to make Jesus out to be something that he is not. We are a culture still obsessed with angels. We love it. Books, movies, testimonies, it is all riddled with angelic spiritual subjects and themes. If you are just to peruse the New York bestseller, even today, you will see that at the very top is a book and now becoming a movie called A Dog's Purpose by W. Bruce Cameron. And what is this book or this movie movie about? It is about a dog who is reincarnated throughout many, many lives. And the tagline of the movie is, the ones we rescue, rescue us. 
We love the idea of a spiritual world, something out there that is looking over us, that is protecting us. What is it that we say when we lose loved ones or someone lose loved ones? It is, it is so quick for us to say, well, I know that so-and-so is looking down over me today. Where does that come from? Won't go there this morning. But why do we say it? We all know why we say it is because we are spiritual people longing to live in a world where there is some type of being looking over us and protecting us, whatever it may be. In other words, we love the security and the comfort that that brings. What we don't care for is a spirituality that promotes an absolutism or even an exclusivism. What we don't love is a spirituality that says, no, 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 no. All roads do not lead to the same God. And what we certainly don't like is a spirituality that leads to the question of, is there a hell in the first place? Instead, what we want is a spirituality that makes the days move easy. This whole week, I've been drawn to this song called, If I Wanted, by a band called Dawes. The chorus rings out, if I wanted someone to clean me up, I'd find myself a maid. If I wanted someone to spend my money, I wouldn't need to get paid. If I wanted someone to understand me, I'd have so much more to say. I want you to make the days move easy. And see, that's the temptation for us right there. With Jesus, it is that we, when we want to make him something that he is not, it is to formulate and fashion him as a Messiah, even as an angelic being, as a faith, as a Christian, where his entire purpose is just to make our days move easy. Is that Christianity for you? What does that look like for you? Perhaps it's a faith that says you don't have to speak out against the injustices that are present in your communities. Maybe it's a faith that says you don't have to give your resources and tithe and your time even because he doesn't really he doesn't need that. He doesn't ask that of you. Maybe it's a faith that says you don't have to forgive that coworker or that family member or that someone else in your life, maybe that enemy even, because all I'm here to do for you is make the days move easy. Whatever it is, I can promise that what's behind our desire to make Jesus into something that he is not is in response to some fear within. Maybe my family will disown me to come back to the original audience. Maybe Nero will come in and take us out. What do I do? What should I say? It's those fears that breed the temptation to make Jesus something that he is not. We haven't gotten there yet, but in chapter 2, we'll find out about the warnings of drifting. Of drifting away from this Jesus. And there may be no greater form of drifting today than believing in a Jesus that doesn't convict, that doesn't call us to confess, doesn't call us to repentance, that doesn't call us to forgive but it's only there to make the days move easy. Well, we consider that, perhaps in small groups tonight, the author of the Hebrews wants to show us who Jesus is, and he wants to show us how, at the very least, he is anything but 
an angel. And the way that he does it is by showing us how superior he actually is to the angels themselves. In other words, he lays out Jesus' credentials for us. And as it turns out, you and I, we need those credentials. We need them bad to have peace with God and to take part in this wonderful, great salvation that we will hear more about later in the book of Hebrews. This is the first point. This is the temptation that we all face. Let's look at the second point now, the credentials that we all need as we get into the text. Beginning there in verse 5, we have the first of seven, seven Old Testament texts that the author is referencing to show or to prove that Jesus isn't just some angel or high spiritual being. He's actually God. And the reason he is pulling from the Old Testament is to show continuity in the story. That is, Jesus, the Messiah, isn't just some new religion that has come up that everybody should start believing in. Jesus' presence and his, his declaration as the Christ isn't some new, um, you know, new age spirituality that all of a sudden seemed convenient for those in, in his age. No, Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment or the continuation of the same story that is found in the Old Testament. It's very important for us to remember this because throughout this letter, this author will be continuing to bring us Old Testament texts to show us who Jesus is. Many Christians, even today, tend to think in their minds that, that there's, there's an Old Testament and then there's a New Testament. And these are two separate books. We even tend to think that these are two separate gods. Often in the way that we talk. And as a result, we don't really need to bother with the old because all we need is the new. But especially as we look at our text this morning, the New Testament writers certainly don't treat the Old Testament that way, do they? They don't because they see it as the same story. That what the Old Testament predicted and anticipated, the New Testament proclaims in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ. So what are those claims? Here we have seven, and I want us to think of these as credentials or qualifications. The first that we come to is the name of Jesus, the name that Jesus is given. Excuse me. Verse five says this, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today? I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. See the name that Jesus is given is son. As in son of God. The first is coming from Psalm 2, which was already a famous messianic psalm understood to be fulfilled in the future day by a descendant of David who would be crowned king. Same story. Second Samuel 7, though, is where we get this other reference, which is similar, but it carries a little more weight because this is actually David's covenant with God, God's covenant with David. This isn't just hearsay. These are the actual words of God to David about a promise of a future Messiah that will come in your line. Now, what makes Jesus deserve the title What makes him deserve this name? That's the key. And for many scholars, it's found in the understanding of what Psalm 2 meant when it said, Today I have begotten you. Last week, Darwin talked about this, and I I need to bring it back to our, our attention, bring it back to our attention because that was last week, right? Yes, Jesus has already been God's son. 
But Psalm 2 has in view of Christ's exaltation and enthronement as son relating to the resurrection. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, you know those introductions we just kind of get over to get to the good stuff? That introduction in verse 4, listen to what he says. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So what qualifies Jesus to be given the name Son according to Scripture culminates in the resurrection of this Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews simply says, which angel has ever done that? Who has that on their resume? No one. No one. So the first thing that the author is showing us that what separates Jesus from the angels is his name. The second thing I want us to look at is his experience, the experience Jesus has to continue with the resume metaphor, if you will. Verses eight and nine here in chapter one come from Psalm 45, which says your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of our kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Jesus is not only given the name of son, he is also awarded the status of king here. Why? Because of his experience. Here's what I mean by that. We have been talking so far about the credentials of Jesus. And like any resume that you might have had to fill out or that you might be working on right now for a job, there are qualifications and experiences that you list on that resume that hope Hopefully to somebody out there says this person is qualified for this position or or this job. And really what you're hoping for as you list those things on that resume is that something on here will catch the eye of an employer. Right. Uh, the, The resume story of all resume stories that I've ever heard in my life comes from a friend who was just graduating with an engineering degree. And he had an interest in movies and decided to forego seminary, which is, you always got to throw that in there somewhere. I was going to go to seminary, but now I'm not, uh, and go to LA to try to get in the movie business. All right. Engineer was going to go into ministry, decided to go to LA. So I'll give it a couple years and he goes out there and, um, you know, as he was thinking about, you know, what he should do and, and all these kinds of things, the only real movie experience that he had was that he, he got to go and kind of sort of work on the set of this documentary of this World, World War II pilot documentary that was being shot in his, where he was living. But all he really did was like hold on to the extension cord to the guy that was holding the boom mic. You know, like there, there really wasn't any involvement, but he said it was, it was really an experience because I got to meet the actual pilots, at least those who... Um, are still alive. Uh, but he, he gets out there and all of a sudden a couple of his roommates, uh, one of his roommates comes to, him, comes to him and says, hey, listen, um, I'm applying for this job. They need a couple more people to apply for it. And I can't share all the details as to why here, but you would be a good one to apply to, you know, to apply for this. You won't get the job, but I think it'll be a good experience for you to go in and you know, talk. And would you, would you mind doing this for me? Sure. So he polishes up that resume, and as he's putting on the finishing touches, of course, as an engineer, he's just got co-op, 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 thermodynamics, co-op, 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 you know, um, heat transfer, right? What does this have to do with L.A.? He remembers this documentary he was a part of, 
And so he puts down, you know, some fancies it up a little bit, assistant to the boom mic person. And, you know, like the whole atmosphere here is you're not going to get this job, but will you just go do this? Well, he goes in, sits down. Guy comes in with the interview, looks at his resume. He's about to hand it back to him. This is going to take, this is going to take like three seconds. When he notices, what, what is this? What, what is this documentary that you were a part of here that he had stuck at the bottom of his resume? And he goes on to tell him about it. And the guy there says, well, you know, our production company is actually communicating and in the works right now to get the rights to do this film with Denzel Washington. And, whoa, really? Okay. And this, they spent the rest of their interview talking about this. And it it just so happened that because this guy had actually worked with the documentary and had actually met the actual pilots, this fascinated the guy doing the interview, gets the call the next day, he has the job. He's still out there working. This is a great story. Great story. Doesn't always work out like that. Sorry, mom and dad. I know I just kind of messed something up for your kids, but, you know, you, you never know. You never know. What's the point of all this? Uh, later, my, my friend's advice to anyone applying for a job was this. You've got to put something on the resume that is going to catch someone's eye. And certainly that was true for him. Everybody has college experience. Everybody has, you know, fill in the blank, has been to this, this, this program, has gone to, this, uh, to, to get this degree. Everybody has this connection. What separates you from all the rest? What qualifies you? You might say that the author of Hebrews is proving what separates Jesus from the angels in the entire first chapter here. But specifically in verse 9, we see what catches in the, in the case of the father's eye that this king is one who loves righteousness and one who hates unrighteousness. The word righteousness in the Greek has, has a narrow meaning and a broad meaning. The broad meaning is this. The state of him who is as he ought to be. In other words, integrity. Purity of life. Right? Correctness of thinking. Correctness of feeling. Correctness of acting. You got that on your resume? I don't. See, someone might say, I have integrity. What are you trying to say? I don't have integrity? No, sure, great. But do you think properly? Do, you, do your feelings ever betray you? Do you act appropriately all the time? And this is the broad sense of the definition of righteousness. The narrow sense is very simple. It's justice. That's what justice is. It's thinking and feeling and acting appropriately in all of life's circumstances. What we begin to see is that the experience that qualifies Jesus isn't listing the right actions or in our case, the right schools, degrees or jobs. It's not those things that qualify him. It's how he did and does those things. It's how he loved righteousness and hated unrighteousness, which is injustice. And that is what catches the father's eye. Who else has the father said these things about? The author rings out. 
So we've seen how Jesus is given this name son, which is superior to any other name and how his experiences qualify him to be king. Lastly, we see credentials that will never change. What Jesus offers is something that will last, something that will hold. Look at verses 10 to 12. The author here pulls from Psalm 102, which says, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years have no end. Please just stop for a second and let those last words soak in. But you are the same and your years have No end. Put yourself in the shoes of that first audience, hearing these words for the first time, wondering what is going to happen next. Wondering, will Nero come in and take us out? Wondering, will I ever see my family again? Did I make the right decision? Should I have compromised? What is wrong with saying that Jesus is just to hire the greatest angel? What's the big deal about saying he's the Christ? Allow that to sink in and what that would have meant to these first listeners. What Psalm 102 is saying to them in light of Christ is that though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of God, his kingdom, his being lasts forever. And do you know what that is? That is an anchor, my friends. That is an anchor. That is is something that you can hold fast to through anything. We're going to hear a lot about anchors in the coming weeks. Trust me. But this God that this author proclaims is unchanging. In our lifetime, to go back to the text, we will wear out a thousand articles of clothing. We will wear out a thousand robes. And we'll roll them up and we'll throw them away. So it is for every man and woman, king, kingdom, president, you name it. But Jesus will outlive them all. And his credentials are unchanging because he is unchanging. No angel has that privilege. So these are just a few of the ways that Jesus is superior His credentials, if you will, it's his name, the son of God. It's his status as king, which are given to him because of his experiences, his loving of righteousness. And we see that he see this also in his unchangeable nature. Well, what does this mean for us? We got to land this plane. So what? Right. So what? Great. This is who Jesus is. I get it. He's superior than all the angels. What does this have to do with me? Everything. You need these credentials. I need these credentials. How are we supposed to get them? And this gets to the final point, which is really a kind of a conclusion, how we receive these credentials. It would almost be a sick joke if the author were just to sort of write this first chapter and just sort of say, look, here's this Jesus person who's more superior than all the angels and leave it at that. Right. This cannot be the point. Right. 
It can't be the point. There must be more. And there is. We notice that in verse 14, what the purpose of angels is. And that is angels are messengers. But messengers sent out to do what? Verse 14, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That word inherit is important and it also means to become an heir. So don't you see what this means? Don't you see what he's getting at? That the point of the author listing Jesus' credentials here, his name, his status as king, his eternal throne, is not just to show you his superiority and wonder and glory, but to show you yours as well. That, the, that as the mediator of this new covenant being ushered in by his own blood, he stands in full representation of those he loves. He is our substitute. And he stands between you and he stands between the Father at all times saying what is true for me is also true for them. This is what we'll see in the coming months when the author writes that he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our mediator. He is our substitute. He is our representation. He is our go-between. And because of that, what is true for him is always true for us, for those who are in Christ. And you might be thinking, why do I need a mediator? Why do I need a substitute? Well, the audience in which this letter was written was not asking that question. They knew why they needed a mediator, a substitute. This was what the entire Levitical law pointed to. This was the point of all the weird sacrificial laws that we read about in the Old Testament that we think we just need to throw those away. But they knew this also because they knew Psalm 1, if I could draw our attention to verse 5. Don't go there, just listen. Psalm 1, the gateway of the Psalter, says... The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And the question for years was, who is able to stand in the congregation of the righteous? Who? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the very one who can stand in the judgment. And who stands in the judgment is Jesus for you, and he does not get burned. This is what it means to have a substitute. This is why we need a substitute. Not angels. It was Jesus who stood in your place to take your judgment on his cross. He was able to stand there for you and not be consumed. And this is why the father in Jesus' resurrection says to him and about him, this is my son today whom I have begotten. It is a status it is a recognition, it is an exaltation of what the Son has done, but also what he has done for you. None of us, and we know this etern- internally, right? None of us can stand in the judgment and not be burned. We know this, whether we confess it. We know we are guilty. And we manifest that guilt in a million different ways throughout the week. We know it. And we need someone to represent us, don't we? But not someone to plead our case before God, but to plead our own. What if a salvation came along that stood for you? That represented you? 
and said, if you want to be a son, if you want to be an heir to God's kingdom, you can have it. What if a salvation came along and said, you want the father's favor upon you? You want the power of an eternal kingdom in your corner? You can have it. You want to be a member of a kingdom that is unchanging and everlasting. Here it is. You can have it. And what a great salvation that would be. Then why would you ever let it go? Why would you ever let it go? And see, this becomes the remedy to our drifting. For wanting a spirituality that just makes the days move easy. Because when we see what Jesus has won for us, when you see what he's won for you, when you see how his resume becomes your resume, when you see that you belong to a kingdom that can never be destroyed, that will go on forever, what begins to happen to the fear that rests in all of us? Your family disowns you because you follow Jesus? That is awful and that is a pain that I never want to experience in this lifetime. But what Hebrews is telling you this morning is you may have lost your family, but you are not without a family. You are sons and daughters to God, the father through Jesus. There are some in this room (laughs) that understand this way more than I do. There are some in this room who have left family and country even for the sake of their own lives, but they are not without a father. They are not without an older brother who looks at them and says, with you, I am well pleased. Nero's armies, they're going to come in and take you out. Death is imminent. But you now belong to a kingdom and a king who reigns forever. See, Psalm 2 was the psalm that allowed the early church to go into persecution, knowing it would lead to death because they knew that this wasn't how the story ended. They knew that Jesus has resurrected and is sits at the right hand of the father where the father makes a, a footstool for its enemies, his enemies. That though the darkness seemed to win for a day, it was death that had been feeded for eternity and the resurrection of Jesus. So what happens to the fear? It disappears and it becomes a love that says, I want to know this Jesus more. I want to know the Savior more each day. And I'm willing to give my life away. I'm willing to serve, to reject a spirituality that says Jesus is just a great angel. And I want to know him more because of the way that he has loved me. And because of that, I'm never going to let him go. I'm never going to let him go. But you know what's more beautiful than that? And I'll leave us here because we're way long. What's more beautiful than that, that before we get to that point, before we ever get to the point where where the words come out of our mouth that I don't want to let this Savior go, that I want this salvation, what's more beautiful than that is that he has already said the same about you. He has already said that about you. He is never going to let you go. Hold fast your hope. So here's what you have, Fort Worth Presbyterian Church and visitors. 
Here's what you have. Here's what you've been given. And when you have someone like this, you never let them go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this introduction. We thank you so much for the beauties uh, of your word and how they come together to exalt and glorify the name of Jesus for us. We don't deserve any of it, but we get it because we have this wonderful mediator, this wonderful substitute, this wonderful salvation. Wherever we find ourselves in light of this Jesus, would this draw us closer to him in some shape, form, or fashion? Would we long to know who he is, regardless of the fears that, 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 that tempt us each day, whether it's to move in a safe and easy way, or whether it's just that maybe there's just pain there that, that we don't want to acknowledge if, if, it, if it means acknowledging Jesus as Savior. Whatever it is, would we forego all that for the sake of knowing who you are, knowing your death and your resurrection? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.